joining us. I'm Maureen Conway. I'm the Executive Director of the Economic Opportunities Program here at the Aspen Institute. And I'm delighted to welcome you to today's event, Home Economics, a discussion about the unregulated world of domestic work. This is the fifth employment sector we're discussing in our series, Reinventing Low-Wage Work, Ideas That Can Work for Employers, Employees, and the Economy. And I'm very grateful to the Ford Foundation and the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation for their generous support of this discussion series. Today in America, about one in five working adults are in jobs that can reasonably be characterized as low-wage. That is, if they were able to work full-time, full-year in these jobs, uh, they still would not earn, earn enough money to lift a family of four above the poverty line. Uh, this is a very substantial proportion of our adult labor force, so I'm not just, I'm not talking about kids here. Um, and uh, over the past few years, as we've come out of the recession, we've seen that relatively more of these kinds of jobs have been created than sort of mid-wage or high-wage jobs. Uh, moreover, when you look at projections from the Bureau of Labor Statistics about which occupations are likely to create the most jobs over the next decade, we see that these kinds of low-wage jobs are the ones that are also projected to create the most jobs. So this challenge of low-wage work is a significant challenge that we really need to think about how to address. For the most part, our public policy response to helping workers try to get jobs or get better jobs is to improve their job prospects through training. Uh, helping workers get the skills uh, that, they, that they need to get into better jobs. And certainly providing skill building and training opportunities is a very important thing that we should be doing more of for everybody who needs and wants additional skills. But if I, as I've spent time, and I have spent quite a bit of time over my career, talking with people who run training programs in a variety of places across the country, um, over the past few years I hear more and more that there are quite a quite a lot more people who are in need of skills and better jobs and who are coming to them than the job opportunities that they can see in their economy that will actually support a family um, for which they should design training and, and help people get into. So there's a real, the, the numbers just weren't working for them. People would say, oh, you have a good program, you should make it larger. But they say, I can't find more jobs, so there's not really any point in making it larger. Um, so. So this, is, so this is sort of the, the, the conundrum that led us to having these conversation series around these low-wage works and to try to think about what are other kinds of ideas that are out there for improving the quality of jobs. So I didn't know what the answer was, so that's why I invite people like this to come and talk with us about what might be done and might be different. In some of our previous discussions, uh, we've looked at restaurant and food industry, uh, residential construction, um, home health and long-term care, retail trading. For those conversations, we set up, um, we would write sort of a three or four page summary of, um, you know, sort of information about the industry, what are industry trends, what are, how many workers are in the industry and what do they look like and what kinds of skills and experience they have. And, and uh, we thought about doing that for this one too, but we didn't for two reasons. The first is um, there's very, very little information about domestic workers. Uh, if you go to the Bureau of Labor Statistics website and you put in domestic workers, mostly what you get are links to footnotes that say domestic workers are excluded from this data set. Um, they're not included in payroll employment. They're not included in insurance records, unemployment records. Um, it's a very uh, private employment relationship and there's really just not very much information about them. Um, the second 
The second reason is that we have this great report <laughs> from the National Domestic Workers Alliance and their colleagues, and I could hardly uh, do better than that. So, um, and I really recommend it to you. It's, uh, they surveyed over 2,000 domestic workers, and it has a lot of really great information in it about the wages and working conditions and what the work of domestic work is really like today in America. Um, so, uh, in lieu of sort of, you know, a few facts and figures about the industry, uh, we thought we would set the stage instead by having you hear directly from a, a domestic worker about how she thinks about her work. And so I will ask my colleague, Maya Goodwin, uh, to go ahead and, and show you a very brief film, uh, about four minutes, uh, from a domestic worker. My name is Marlene Champion. I came to the U.S. from Barbados 20 years ago and I've been taking care of the elderly and kids for the past 19 years. I started in Barbados when I was a teenager, matter of fact. In them days, you start to work very early, matter of fact. And um, especially if your parents were not the kind of parents to push you into education. Dr. Steiner was one of my dear and closest clients. He was a pediatrician. He had hip problems. The day that I met him, he was sitting in his den. I asked him if he can walk, and he said yes. And I said, well, as of today, you'll be having your meals in the dining room. And that's where I started the process of bringing him out of the shell that he was slowly putting himself into. Watching TV and seeing the violence and the things that were happening, he was scared. Another time, I said, well, just walk from one end of the patio to the other. And he did that a couple of times. And I keep on doing that until I got him in his wheelchair. Then soon after that, he even started going to weddings and bar mitzvahs and stuff like that. I think being a part of each other's lives not only make him feel better, it also prolonged his life for six and a half years. To me, he felt like a part of my family after a while. And I think the same thing called for him. It was the Thanksgiving that we went to. And I'm sitting around this table with 20 somebody people, and I'm the only black person in the room. And I said to his nephew, I'm like the fly in the milk. And he said to me, you're not flying no milk. And I mean, and it, it, they, they made me feel welcome. They did. I was taken care of like a human being. Dr. Steiner had a great influence in me during my GED because he always used to, to say to me, you are better than some of the doctors that I work with because of your bedside manner. When I finally got my GED, I was 53. You're never too old to learn. I got my nanny's certificate through Domestic Workers United. To get certification as a nanny is very important, especially when you're going on a new job. It also helps because it tells your potential employer that you can take care. We learn pediatrics, how to take care of new babies. We learn nutrition, is taking care of kids and stuff like that. You learn the negotiation. You learn how to carry yourself 
Your presentation is very important. I'm proud of being able to draw people out that I'm taking care of and I can get that person to smile. I'm happy and it makes my day. And I hope that this piece would also not only tell employers that domestic workers are human beings too and we need respect. I'm also telling domestic workers to respect themselves. And when you respect yourself, respect would follow. Great. Well, that was a really um, nice clip, and I want to thank the Caring Across Generations campaign for that. There's others on their website. Um, what I particularly like about that story, well, we'll have a lot of conversation, and um, you can read about some of the challenges domestic workers face, but I particularly like that that story also presents sort of how this can be a very positive experience being a domestic worker, and that there's a positive vision for this, this work. Um, and that's what I love also about some of our panelists today is that while they recognize all the challenges, they also hold this positive vision of what's possible. Um, so let me quickly introduce them so that you can uh, have a conversation. I do want to make um, a couple uh, quick announcements. One is we will be doing Q&A following the, the panel. And please wait. Uh, we're recording this, so please wait for the microphone and introduce yourself uh, when you get the microphone. Um, we are also tweeting. And uh, the hashtag is domestic worker AI. So uh, feel free to tweet, but please do keep your phones on silent. Um, okay, so now I can introduce our illustrious panel. You have their bios in your material, so I'm not going to read them to you. I will just quickly introduce them. So right near me is Judy Patrick, President and CEO of the Women's Foundation of California. Next to her is Ai-jen Pu, uh, Director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance. Uh, seated by iGen is Barbara Young, who is a national organizer and former domestic worker with the Na National Domestic Workers Alliance. Um, she is uh, adjacent to Mary Romero, professor of justice studies and social inquiry at Arizona State University. And we're very grateful to have um, Jennifer Ludden of NPR here to moderate today's discussion. So I will turn it over to Jennifer. Thank, Thank you all for being here. Thank you, Maureen, and thanks everyone for coming. And I'm happy to see a number of men in the audience because caregiving is often talked about as a woman's job, and that's sometimes described as part of the reason it's under the radar and low paid. And look at us all here. <laughs> but we know it affects everyone, uh, men as well as women. So thank you all for coming. Um, I uh, personally have uh, had the experience of uh, hiring a nanny. That's uh, my interaction with this. I, I think, though, um, the idea I would have to never even struck me until I was maybe three months pregnant. I certainly, when you talk about home health care aids, I'm sure no one ever thinks that they will need it, uh, that. And so I think this comes as a surprise to so many people, even though it shouldn't. And it was striking that the process of um, finding someone for such a fundamental role, as, you know, in my case, raising my children, became so haphazard. and, and completely unregulated and you're talking to friends, you're looking at ads in a little local newspaper or you're going on someone else's word and it's, it's um, frightening and crazy in a way. Um, and overwhelming, really overwhelming. I think it was the most uh, stress I had about thinking ahead of, of having children. I didn't know the cost of college tuition then, but, <laughs> 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 but this was stressful. Um, 
And then, of course, you find a, a wonderful caregiver and it makes everything work. But you also realize that it is a very unequal relationship. Um, you're in charge, there's no union, there's no contract unless you draw it up. Um, and you, you, know, you come to understand wonderful people you really like may not pay benefits or taxes, um, that people may not ask for this, employees may not ask for this. It's, it's really uh, uncharted territory. And um, of course there are uh, abuses that we, some of them we read about in the media and I'm sure many others we don't. Um, and the big picture, as Maureen mentioned, uh, this is a huge growing area, one of the fastest growing areas uh, in the economy, will be caregiving. We have the baby boomers have just recently started turning 65. That's a huge demographic um, uh, movement in the economy that will drive this industry. Um, and yet you have wage pressures all around for home health aides in particular. Uh, much of the funding comes from Medicaid, the government. We know the budget pressures there. And on the individual employer's side, employer side, you have budget pressures because it's not just caregivers, but other people in low, increasingly low-wage jobs. Just to put some numbers on what Marie mentioned, uh, the National Employment Law Project reported recently lower-wage occupations were 21% of job losses during the recent recession, but have been 58% of new jobs in the recovery. So um, how can domestic work uh, largely unregulated provide not just jobs but decent jobs that will keep these workers out of poverty. What are the challenges and uh, uh, opportunities? Uh, we'll talk a little bit later about immigration reform and the prospect for that. Um, so let's uh, start with uh, challenges and, and uh, opportunities. Uh, Barbara, since you are a, have been a domestic worker, tell us a bit about your experiences, um, the good, the bad, and the challenges that you hear in your work today from caregivers. Well, as a um, domestic worker, um, we take care of the most important element of the employer's lives, the children, the elderly parents, and the homes. And I, I did that for 17 years um, in New York. I started as an elder caregiver um, for one year, and then I switched and become, and then I became a nanny. I did both live-in work and live-out work as a nanny. And I would say what's good about the job, you interview for the job, you meet the family, and then there's the kid. And when I started... Um, That's the good or the bad part? This is the, no, this is the good part. <laughs> this is the good part. You get to, you get to bond with the kid. And... Um, I'm, I'm in the, the parents go out to work and I'm in the house with the kid, watching the kid grow, you know, um, taking care of the kid and, and you see how close the kid become to you and um, everything that kid does. Um, are you proud of me? Are you proud of me? Yes, I'm proud of you. And, and the kid trusts you a lot more than they trust the parents. <laughs> and, and, and that is, is one of the, the good parts about um, being a nanny. Then you get to love, really love the, the care work you're doing. And then you hear people who are taking care of the elderly. They, they tell you how the elderly person um, get to love them and look, look up to them and the care that, for the care that they're giving them. The, the bad thing about the, the job, I would say, is sometimes the, the pressures. There's no guidelines. 
um, the lower pay. Um, as the report will show, um, how many workers are working below the minimum wage in these jobs. And then there is the long hours that um, you, you're working as a, um, a caregiver in some person's home. I was working between 12 to 14 hours a day. Some people work longer hours, as much as 24 hours. It all depends on the job that you're doing. At one point, I did a 24-hour job for 10 months, where I started with a five-week-old uh, five baby and sleep in the same room as the baby, and I had to wake up in the night and take care of the baby every three hours. So, um, and then again, there is the lack of benefits in these jobs. I had no health insurance. Um, and one of my jobs, I had no social security. And the report will show only 9% of employers pay social security for the, the workers that they, they employ. So right. this is, the, this is um, some of the challenges that you get in working in, in the home. Let's hear more of that. Igen, you, you, the G National Domestic Workers Alliance uh, did a report recently. Give us some more highlights from what you found and what was most surprising. Absolutely. So we found in our survey that um, more than 20% of domestic workers are still earning below minimum wage. And when you look at live-in workers' conditions, it's even worse, where more than 60% of the workforce that works live-in earns below minimum wage. And what that often translates into is just deep poverty, food insecurity. So we actually found that 20% of the workforce has been in a position within the last month of when the survey occurred that they didn't have enough money for food. And so what we what the what we found is that the workforce that we count on to take care of our families um, can't actually take care of their own um, in this situation. So. Mary, can you give us a historical perspective on how this situation has evolved and and uh, what are some of what you've called the hidden costs in this structure? Well, it's interesting to look at domestic service because it's managed to survive slavery. Um, feudalism and anarcho-capitalism, yet it still carries the vestiges of each of those to a certain degree. And I think we see those specifically in the way in which it hasn't been um, included in uh, labor regulations that we have with other jobs today. Um, and of course, this kind of work is not going to disappear because people still have to raise their children, they have to care for their for the elderly, and they need to care for um, those that are sick. Um, what we find right now is sort of a continuum um, in that we're living with. One on one side, you have um, domestics who are employed to work for one employer. They may be doing that in a live-out or a day work kind of situation. They may or may not be receiving benefits, uh, social security, taxes being taken, and so forth. Um, you also have the emergence of co-op workers, where workers are getting together and developing their own co-ops and going out to work together. And of course, you also have cleaning agencies, which don't necessarily provide um, any better um, working conditions or pay or benefits for the employers. Um, the work situation also, there's quite a variety in there, although the women are hired with a job description 
um, that may include child work and then they find themselves also expected to cook, to, to clean. Those that are doing hired to clean house um, may find themselves also cooking and doing child work. So there is a difficulty in maintaining um, the job description. Um, and of course there's a working conditions as Barbara mentioned, the long hours, there's a variation in that, the amount of pay that they're getting, um, uh, receiving. There's also um, the exposure to toxic chemicals, particularly for um, uh, women who are cleaning the houses. It's interesting to look back at, at social science research because in the 60s they predicted that this was a vanishing occupation, that Americans would never um, uh, be able to tolerate having to work with or, or maintaining an occupation in which they considered someone inferior was against the American character. Um, they also figured that so much of this was going to be commodified and leave the household. However, of course this didn't um, occur. Um, although African-American women don't dominate the occupation anymore, uh, women of color, primarily immigrant women, um, dominate the occupation. We find that um, women have left the homes, they're working outside the home at large numbers. There is no state programs to help working families. Um, there's no state programs to help them care for their elderly. Uh, people are living longer today and they're living alone. And so the way that we live has changed. Our commutes to work have increased. The amount of time that we work increases so that we have less and less time um, to do this kind of labor on our own. Um, and of course the hidden costs, um, there is a hidden cost within the employer's, employee's family. That is, she's not there to do that work. Um, her children go without um, in order to provide uh, financial means for the family. Um, there's also um, the hidden cost of working families for all, both the employers and the employees, that the state has not stepped in to help these um, individuals. And we continue to treat this as a pr private issue rather than a public issue. Uh, Judy, the Women's Foundation of California, you work to build women's economic security. Can you tell us how do you define that and, and what are you doing to make it? So we define economic security really based on the work that Wider Opportunities for Women pioneered uh, many years ago and are now using um, the basic economic security tables best. And the thinking behind that is, you know, a woman and her family are economically secure when they have enough to meet uh, the, the costs, uh, the resources and the social connections to meet the costs uh, for good and safe housing, for uh, healthy food, for uh, access to good education for their kids, healthcare, transportation, sort of the full package. So for a family of four uh, right now that, uh, and this is, as many of you know, a county by county calculation often, but it's around $68,000 to meet these basic costs. So this is the equivalent if we use the, the U.S. minimum wage of four full-time jobs. To, to meet the basic cost of living. Um, the, I think, you know, to just talk a bit about the cultural challenges, uh, many of them are about the challenges, many of them have been mentioned, but I think, uh, you know, there's a whole set of cultural challenges that we can't ignore when we think about this uh, issue. So we still, I, th I believe, live in a country with the bootstrap mentality which is if you work hard enough, uh, you will achieve uh, economic security. And it's resulted in, I think, a, a workplace system that doesn't have the policies and protections that we really need in place 
to let uh, uh, people take care of their economic needs. Um, as Jennifer mentioned when we started, this is uh, women's work continues to be devalued in this country regardless of what it is, and I think that there's an extreme um, devaluing of the work that domestic workers do. I'll talk a little bit about this later when I talk about some of the policy work we're doing uh, in California, specifically with our governor there. Um, and there's, I think there's a way that the argument gets made uh, that this has allowed women to step into the workplace. I think it's also provided um, um, some men, uh, again, with the um, opportunity to not uh, carry their full weight uh, in uh, the maintenance of households. So I think this is one of the culture issues that we have. We also have a rush to the bottom in this country, both I think in terms of services and what we pay for goods. And I think we all want to get the best price on a good or a service and this continually uh, depresses wages. Uh, and then obviously we've spoken about that a little bit, but it's this grand intersection of uh, race and gender and immigration status that I think makes such a difference in the work here. Let's talk about employers a little bit. Um, Judy, staying with you, uh, you know, we've, we've mentioned parents of young kids, uh, maybe children of aging parents or the elderly themselves will, will hire someone. A lot of this is women hiring women. What should we keep in mind when we look at this and, and think about the employers? Yeah, um, so I want to start by saying that there are really good, there are good employers out there. And I think that there are employers who don't do as good a job as could be done in taking care of this um, um, uh, particular workforce. We uh, are lucky at the Women's Foundation that we have a group of donors uh, and their as associates and friends that care deeply, that hire domestic workers that care deeply about this population that have uh, really been willing to organize uh, their friends and lobby uh, on behalf of the legislation we worked on in California in Sacramento and I think that's uh, made a, a huge difference but uh, we also I, th I think this is about organizing right it's about organizing workers but it's also about organizing employers to help employers understand what does it mean uh, to uh, provide a good working situation for uh, the people that they employ what does it mean to actually write a contract there's a lot of education that I think we can do uh, on this side of the uh, equation, and, and that's part of the work we have to do. Barbara, what, what, would, what would you like to add on the, this relationship, employer-employee, and, and do you have advice you give you know, domestic workers today and how to manage it? Um, I've, I can tell you um, my experience in working with um, employers. There, there are some good employers, but there are some employers who don't, doesn't see themselves as employers. They would in, can interview 25 applicants and choose one person that they think is the best person for the job. And then when the person go into work, they still doesn't see themselves as an employer. And so they, they give you tasks to do. For instance, I started with one child, and I was getting less, I would say, than the minimum wage. But, um, and four years after, there was a second child. And for the second child, 
I didn't get any increase. Did you ask for that? I, did you I, bring it up? I did not. I did not bring it up and they didn't offer me anything for the, the second child. And this was a live-in job. However, I stayed with that job for eight years. And see how the kids get so close to me. And um, I would say to the child, when the parents come home, I said, go talk to your parents. And they say, and they say I went already. They just go and say hello, and they, and they come back <laughs> to me. And they, they, um, they just want to be with me. The, the, the employers have no guidelines. There's no set guidelines for employers. So when they, they hire you, they increase the tasks that you do, um, they just play a, pay a flat rate. But what I think what we need is for employers to have guidelines, have regulations to, to follow in, in, in hiring a worker. Uh, <coughs> and most workers are afraid to complain for fear of retaliation and for fear of losing the job. This is all they have to support themselves and their families. And although it is um, such a little bit, it is something at the end of the week. So, um, and then they, they need a way to document their hours. And this is what, as an organizer now, this is what I say to people. I say, get a notebook, document the hours you work. So that you would have something, whether, um, if the employer tell, give you a contract, whether um, a verbal contract or a physical contract, you would have something after you document your hours that you can look back, you can look back to. And, and these are the things that happen when um, the work continue and more tasks added, more um, relationships start to go bad because people are internalizing what's happening in the, in the home. Remember, we are not family members. As domestic workers, we're not family members. We're there to exchange work for a paycheck. Which can be hard to remember because the children probably do think of you as a family member. Mary, what, what else can be done to sort of impose some regulation on this relationship and, and give more power, I guess, to the employee. I want to build a little on what Barbara has said. What I've come across is that there is a really strong feeling that the relationship between the employer and the employee in this situation is quite different. And because they're engaged in a labor of love, um, that, uh, that needs to be treated different, that it's unique from other kinds of living situations. And I have to say, I don't accept that approach uh, because it allows for excuses to justify micromanaging and also for exploiting the worker. Um, it's interesting to look at the research on employers' um, practices and it's very clear that employers hire on the basis of who they feel comfortable with. Who do they feel comfortable having in their home? Who do they feel comfortable giving orders to? Who do they feel comfortable that um, um, cleaning for them? Um, etc. Um, 
instead of that, it seems to me that in any other work situation, employers should be looking at the worker's experience, their skills, and hiring them on the basis of that. If you hire the best employer that's out there that has experience and skills, they don't need to be micromanaged. You respect them as a worker as you would in any other um, situation. Um, so employers also need to recognize that when they hire somebody um, to do care work or to clean their house, their home becomes somebody else's workplace and they need to make that adjustment and respect um, the employee and their rights and um, respect the work that they do. Ijin, what, what, how is there a way to, to encourage um, more of this kind of thinking in employers without alienating them or, or, or what, what, what are you trying to do? Well, I would say that employers are very diverse, as diverse as the workforce and um, I think that uh, what we've always done is assumed the best and that assume that people want to do the right thing and if they just know what that is and we make it easy for them that they will step up and so we've actually worked in close partnership with employers over the years and in New York State for example employers were heavily involved in winning a Bill of Rights for domestic workers um, that was passed in 2010. Um, we went to an organization called Jews for Racial and Economic Justice and they formed an association of employers um, through many different synagogues in New York City and that employers association essentially came and, and said they believe in standards and guidelines and they believe that having standards and guidelines is actually in the employers interests as well um, because they were tired of this very arbitrary unpredictable as much as it's a wild west for workers it can also feel that way for employers as well and so they created a supportive space for employers to come together talk about their experience as employers what they were struggling with what they were grappling with and then supported them to understand what some good guidelines might look like something you can download is it exists it is. Do you know it, a, a there's contract? a website um, <laughs> on the domesticemployers.org um, the association is now national, it's called Hand in Hand, um, and under the notion that healthy um, homes and good workplaces go hand in hand. And, um, and they were, we did all kinds of educational forums with employers. We're organizing together in a neighborhood called Park Slope in New York and Brooklyn um, to create a neighborhood-wide code of care where employers and workers and local businesses and local elected officials are all supporting a set of standards that even goes beyond the Domestic Workers Bill of Rights in New York State. Um, and I would say that that experience has led to just a lot of different kinds of creative ways of working together across workers and employers to promote standards, respect, and dignity. Um, and I think that there's a lot of possibility there. And they're actually doing trainings for employers about what it means to have someone working in your home and what kind of dynamics that creates and what to look out for and how to prepare um, and things like that. So it's a real partnership there. And we were able to do things like um, we organized a march, a children's march for the Domestic Workers Bill of Rights that was led by the children that domestic workers care for, they're, they're the children of employers, and the domestic workers' children themselves. And there were signs that said, respect my mommy and respect my nanny. And you know, it was a, 
the kind of thing that showed what's possible when you actually create the opportunity for people to do the right thing and support them to do so. You mentioned training for employers. Maureen talked about training for employees as, as a widespread way to try and increase skills to then hopefully increase pay. Uh, Ijen, what, what is happening uh, in, in this world for employees? And then the question is, does it actually pay off? Can someone actually find a higher paying job if they have X skills? Our work has been, the National Domestic Workers Alliance has been working to bring domestic workers together to shine a light on the realities that Barbara and others have talked about and Mary have talked about um, to raise awareness about both the value of this work and its centrality to our families and our economy, but also the need for really strong protections and guidelines um, and for us to have a real public conversation about the need for care. It's a reality and we need to talk about it. Um, and, uh, and we've done things like fight for labor protections. In New York in 2010, we passed the first Domestic Workers Bill of Rights and we're working to, to pass similar legislation in California and I think Judy's gonna talk about that. And uh, three additional states, Massachusetts, Illinois, Hawaii, and four more states in 2014. And we're in a real moment where there's uh, increasing awareness and an opportunity to really reverse the historic exclusion that this workforce has faced in the labor protections in the current labor, frame, labor law framework. And there's a real awakening, I think, and an opportunity to have this conversation in a more public way. And training programs, like the nanny training program that Marlene talked about in the video, are now being scaled and replicated around the country, as well as elder care training programs. Um, and so more and more people are starting to understand that this is skilled work, and this is dignified work, and it should be really valued and seen as such. Judy, is training something that philanthropists want to, could get involved in, and, and what would you uh, look for? Well, I think part of that challenge within philanthropy and, and within the public government uh, sector within the workforce development system is a deeper understanding of what's actually happened in the workforce. So there is such a draw, I think, among philanthropists and also uh, the workforce development system, the, the workforce investment boards, to think that what, where we really need to invest now is in helping uh, people get the training they need for higher wage jobs which and jobs with career ladders, which it would be wonderful. Um, but as Maureen said, these, these are not the, the jobs, these are not the sectors that are growing in our country right now. So part of the work uh, in philanthropy, I think, is to, to help, um, is for, for this community to understand that um, that we have, an, we have another challenge, which is to improve the quality of low-wage work. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's a lot of uh, what um, the domestic worker movement is really about. Uh, and there are other places, restaurant workers, et cetera, in our country, where we're really finally saying, you know, let's make these better jobs because this is where the jobs are. And uh, it's a different kind of investment, and we have to convince philanthropists and the public sector that it's worth the investment uh, to uh, really uh, stabilize fa uh, women and families in employment. Uh, so I think um, that's part of where we need to go in philanthropy, and part of that is, I think, advocacy work within the public sector 
uh, that looks at the metrics uh, of the workforce investment system and what actually gets measured and where the investments get uh, placed. I mean, we've been doing some research in California right now to look at how can we really invest in job uh, training for low-wage uh, healthcare workers, domestic workers, home healthcare workers. And I have been told so many times in talking to uh, people working in workforce investment, this is a population that is simply, it just falls off the screen, people say to me. Because the, the system doesn't work for training for these people. So yes, I think uh, training is really important. Uh, funding the advocacy that can help shift some of these uh, systems and expectations. Uh, funding communications around um, this work is another role that philanthropists can play. Uh, funding the alliance building that's necessary. Um, we've certainly seen in California that one of the big challenges in getting the domestic worker bill passed was uh, its impact on the disability community. Right? That is a piece of work that is you know, it requires time, it needs to be invested, invested in because these are both populations that we care about, right? So how do we uh, resource the work to build those alliances? And tell us a little bit more about the disability community, which has been very vocal and influential in uh, some of this uh, area. Well, you know, so much of, uh, so many people in that community are dependent on their care uh, funded by uh, public dollars, right? And so uh, if, uh, I mean, their fear is that if their costs of getting care go up, they will get less costs at a, or less care at a time when state budgets are uh, shrinking every place. Uh, so this came out when the Obama administration proposed changes to the wage and hour and overtime regulation and right. the disability community was very concerned. Yes, absolutely. And we, it's played out in California in exactly the same way. Okay. Um, Ijin laid out a very ambitious plan for expanding the state uh, organizing around this. Barbara, you're involved in that. Tell us what, um, in your experience, it, what, what works, maybe what hasn't worked in trying to organize grassroots uh, movements in this area. They, um, I must say first, the National Domestic Workers Alliance is growing. We started in 2007 with 11 organizations. And today, we are 40 affiliate organizations in 23 cities and 14 states. And we are amplifying the efforts of um, domestic workers. Um, mostly, we're mostly women, mostly immigrant um, population that's doing this work now. And we are <laughs> amplifying our efforts around the country and around these workers. Um, to improve their lives, their lives. Um, and what we have is um, building their confidence. We have a training program now for um, domestic workers, um, the Solidarity Organizing Leadership Program, um, and to, to mobilize and to build leadership among um, domestic workers. Um, I didn't talk about the New York Domestic Workers Bill of Rights um, and um, we're trying to have more Domestic Workers Bill of Rights because we are an excluded workforce from the um, National Labor Relations Act and um, so we want 
things to establish for domestic workers, like an eight-hour work day. But how, how, I mean, it must be so difficult because you talked about the long hours, people don't want to speak up and complain. So how can you attract people to do just that? They, um, now, if we have laws and regulations, it would attract people to the industry. There's a fast turnover in the industry because if you're working 16 hours and some person tell you about a, a 12 hour day, you're gonna leave that job because um, <laughs> you need uh, a better um, conditions of employment for yourself. And, and there's a, 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 a fast turnover in the industry and we want the jobs to be decent jobs. Recently, I was at a meeting with um, care workers and um, we talk about the elderly and the disability groups um, being paid from um, state dollars for their care. And one caregiver passed me a note. Uh, we had one of the experts talking about a decent job and she passed me a note and said, I'm working for $9 an hour, is this a decent job? And she have two clients, two elderly people that she's taking care of four hours with one person and she go to another person for four hours. And so when we, when we talk about um, having a decent job, we mean a job that paying a living wage that some person can um, really um, be able to eat and, and take care of themselves off these jobs. And the, the states have to increase the pay the workers that are taking care of the disability, dis uh, disabled, and the and they, they elderly, so that the people who are taking care of them can realize this. I, I Jen, at the National Domestic Workers Alliance, who, who have been your allies mm -hmm. in this effort? And I'm curious particularly about the role of organized labor. Um, well, we always say that in a, in a campaign or a movement for human dignity that there's no such thing as an unlikely ally. Um, and so we actually have made friends and built partnerships in all kinds of places, beginning with employers and, and even now we're building really strong relationships with the disability groups and, um, and older adult groups, senior groups and all kinds of organizations. Um, and we have had a long-standing partnership with the AFL-CIO. Um, the trade union movement does see the changes in the workforce and sees that this sector is one of the fastest growing workforces in the country and that if we're to try to improve working conditions for workers and rights for workers in this country, we've got to be a labor movement that's inclusive um, of this workforce. So, for several years we've been building that relationship and we are now in a long-term campaign called Caring Across Generations with both SEIU and AFSCME who represent home care workers around the country. Um, collectively, probably more than 700,000 home care workers. And we're putting forward a vision that is inclusive not just of um, home care workers and domestic workers but also of the consumers and the employers who count on care, supports, and services every day. Um, and the whole goal of the campaign is to actually expand access and affordability for all the families 
who need care, supports, and services, and individuals, as well as improve the quality of these jobs for workers in the same vision and the same agenda for a more caring economy and a more caring country for all of us. Um, so it's a vision to create jobs, make sure that those jobs are good jobs that you can take pride in and support your family on, but also to support the families who are really struggling to afford the care and supports that they need. And that's the kind of work that we believe is needed in this moment. It's like, it's not us and them, it's all of us together. And when we make this a priority for the country so much as possible. I think the, the challenge with the austerity budgets is that it is coming from this place of scarcity. But I think we all know there's so many ways in which this country is resourceful and our families are resourceful and our um, workforces are resourceful and when we make something a priority we can make it happen and so this is about bringing together all of these different experiences and interests to make this a national priority. Mary so many of the workers we're talking about are immigrant women. Um, tell us about some of the challenges and maybe strategies for engaging them, uh, keeping in mind that some of them at this moment may not be of legal status and, and really reluctant to speak out. Well, I think there's been a really long-held belief that immigrant wor workers cannot be organized and that they will not take the risk. Um, however, there are a lot of success stories that really challenge that myth um, among janitors, among construction workers, restaurant workers, hotel workers, and now with the National Workers Domestic Alliance. Um, and I think that a lot of the strategies, it's hard to add to anything that, that is already being done uh, by the domestics because they have been um, very innovative, recognizing the fact that um, these women work alone primarily in, in homes, and so they are, uh, to a very large degree, isolated from each other, but identifying the places that they come together in terms of parks, in terms of churches, in terms of bus stops, um, it's just been incredible to watch how innovative they have been in terms of getting the uh, message out and um, getting these women to uh, participate in seeking out um, programs that would benefit them in terms of learning English, in terms of, of, of other types of skills, and then you know moving them towards um, identifying as uh, workers and improving um, their working conditions and participating in the campaigns that have uh, been set out. Okay. We're going to spend the next few minutes uh, talking about public policy before going to questions. Um, Judy in California, Governor Jerry Brown recently vetoed uh, the Domestic Worker Bill of Rights. Um, lessons learned from that and next steps. So in terms of next steps, I'm going to start there. We are about, we meaning, um, I'm only on the fringe of this, but the coalition in California that's been working on this uh, is about to introduce the final language uh, for this session. It's the third time. We're hoping the third time is a charm. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, there have, so we've had, uh, we've worked with two different, uh, I would say, teams, uh, and some people have continued uh, from one bill to the next. Uh, in really trying to get this uh, signed into law. The first time, uh, it didn't get to the de governor's desk. It didn't get through the Senate. Uh, last year, it got to the governor's desk, uh, but got vetoed there. And so there have obviously been lessons all the way along. 
Uh, and I think it's helpful to think uh, in doing the strategy about what can we control and what can't we control. So this last time around, uh, our governor had uh, a, a big agenda uh, in a proposition that was on the ballot to uh, increase uh, revenues for the state. And I think every single decision he made about bills that he signed was really based on the importance of getting this proposition passed. So I think, I mean, there were, and, and I think there were the challenges in the disability community that made it even more difficult uh, this, the, than the second time around. Uh, the disability community really organized uh, around the impact it would have on them. So it was a combination of um, a governor who would sacrifice anything to get his proposition passed. Uh, and uh, then a lot, a lot of what had happened with the disability community, but also what happened uh, in the private sector with uh, other employers who at the beginning raised uh, a lot of issues about this. Uh, the uh, coalition working on the bill took amendments but that satisfied their concerns, but I think the language of the amendments was never quite integrated by the governor's office and uh, integrated uh, really into the larger business sector on uh, what this bill was really about. There have been some really good lessons, uh, like the importance of identi identifying people in the Capitol, whether they were uh, assembly members or senators or staffers who had links uh, to uh, the domestic uh, workforce. Uh, so in the process, identified several elected officials whose parents, whose mothers had been domestic workers. They became huge advocates and public spokespeople about why this issue was so important. I think, uh, and I probably should have started here, but the th one of the things that imp has impressed me so much about this work in California is that it has been done by a coalition of organizations working with domestic workers who have involved their members in such deep ways. I think I've never really witnessed uh, a policy process where they would not move forward in accepting an amendment or crafting you know, this, the next version of the bill without consultation with their members, which is a huge amount of work, as I'm sure most of you understand. But it has been so empowering. I mean, so it's really, it's about the, the uh, legislation and it's also about a workforce that increasingly understands their rights, feels like they can speak on their own behalf. So, you know, we, we hope it happens this year. Uh, there's strategy, I, I would, the other thing I would say is that there's strategies in the governor's office that we're learning about and are working differently on uh, this year uh, to make sure we have some, more than one voice on the governor's staff advocating for the, the signing of this bill. Okay. So it's, um, it's a great adventure, it's lots of fun, um, <laughs> and it's a wonderful coalition working on it. That's positive there, keeping positive. Yeah. So you're still working. Ijin, you have had success in New York. Tell us um, what that has meant for domestic workers there, and if any of that can translate, you think, maybe on the federal level. Yeah. So in New York, um, we estimate that about 200,000 workers were affected by this bill passing in 2010. The workforce there is very large. Um, you know, I think we often ask our members to imagine what New York City would look like if one day all the domestic workers decided not to go to work. <laughs> it's hard to imagine a single sector that wouldn't be affected. Um, 
And what we found is that more and more workers are actively trying to seek out what their rights are, trying to understand what their rights are, and trying to understand and uh, figure out what it would look like to try to negotiate with their employers in a much more proactive way. So there are trainings, there are hotlines, there are lots of ways in which workers are starting to come to us more as a result of this new law being in place to try to figure out how can they use the existence of this law to leverage better working conditions and wages. And employers are also reaching out to us a lot. Actually, most of the calls to the hotline in New York are from employers um, trying to learn what are, their ex what are the expectations of them under this uh, new set of laws. So I think that all of that is starting to happen. Um, although it's very decentralized, so there are real challenges in terms of enforcement. Um, there are many, many employers and workers out there who have no idea that this law exists. And it's about constant outreach and education and creative ways of reaching out to people to raise awareness about the existence of the law. Um, and I would say that um, one important factor is that, you know, one of our members, Dolores, I think said it best. She said, I now feel like when I go to work every day, I can hold my head up high knowing that I'm recognized by the state of New York as a real worker. And I think just that recognition, that feeling, um, goes a long way towards improving dignity at work. Barbara, what change have you seen among the workforce there? And, and are there other things that could be done to encourage em employees to come forward? Yeah, they, um, for instance, now we have a legal clinic also in, um, for workers who think that they um, are not being um, given a fair, a fair chance at um, the new law. And um, also, I didn't talk about the hotline for both employers and employees. Um, we are looking at getting changes so that employ, uh, employees can um, looking at what collective bargaining would look like for employees and um, but what we need is changes. We need um, the regulatory changes from the Department of Labor that um, can make workers eligible for overtime and at least the minimum wage payment. We know that some employees um, working in the suburbs are still not getting um, the minimum wage payment. Um, we need both protections and enforcement and, um, and laws that govern workers. And this is not only for New York, but this is for around the, the country. And um, one of the um, things I think about to, um, I just spoke about a worker um, holding her head high and um, being recognized as a worker. And, um, but I think that we just celebrated Dr. Martin Luther King. And um, one of the things he talked about was work, dignity, humanity. And, um, and he said, whenever you are engaged in work that serves humanity, and it is for the building of humanity, it has dignity, and it has worth. And we, as workers, have dignity and worth. And until we, we look at our job that way, and the work 
the public in general see us as um, dignified workers, then there will be changes. All right, last thing is the agenda for later this year could well include immigration reform, which would have a big impact on this workforce. Mary, what will you be looking for and what, how could this change things? Well, I think one of the things that needs to occur is uh, the, the way in which we define uh, who is a worker um, in this country. And in the case of domestic workers, they have been excluded early on on the basis that anyone who was getting uh, doing work in somebody's home were not eligible to be protected by the law. And so this definition of who's a, uh, an employee as well as protection, I know there's been a variety of bills that have been passed to protect small businesses which um, identify a certain amount of employees in order for protections to be um, um, regulated. However, I think that the uh, Department of Labor really needs to re-examine how we define an employee and get um, their definition to really reflect the reality that we're living in today. Um, um, at the same time, we can see in the case of like for live-in domestic workers, there's a, other occupations in which people live in, such as firefighters, such as residential um, uh, care workers in um, uh, um, various institutions, and there has been no problem in trying to identify exactly how to pay them overtime and to pay them for the times there. But this seems to keep coming up as an exception. Um, workers need to be covered under OSHA. Um, it wouldn't take a lot to um, educate employers that they need to provide workers with um, um, protective gloves, provide workers with um, uh, mechanisms to help them lift. Um, um, their, uh, their patients. Um, also, little things like making sure the elevator works for um, nannies who have to carry um, um, baby carriers, which the ones that are coming out today can be quite enormous and heavy. <laughs> um, also, um, sexual harassment is a, a big problem in domestic work, and yet um, there aren't provisions to protect them. Um, under civil rights legislation. Um, and so they just need to be included in all this. We need to update what we have defined as, as, an, um, as an employee. And many of these exclusions come to the fact, I, I want to return again, that in the past it was done largely by African American women and by um, immigrant women. And so those seems to be completing continuation of excluding these workers um, from the benefits that the rest of us expect. Right, and Ijen, very briefly, I know you are also looking toward the immigration debate. What will you be looking for? Well, this moment on immigration is absolutely game-changing. I think we have the opportunity in 2013 to bring millions of low-wage, mostly low-wage workers out of the shadows and onto a road to citizenship. And, um, and so we're incredibly excited. We're all in. Um, for that, and I think that it's going to make a transformative difference in the lives of millions of women workers, especially domestic workers who've been working in the shadows. It, it, the fact that there hasn't been a path to citizenship thus far has just meant that there's an extra layer of fear and isolation and vulnerability that this workforce has faced on top of the exclusions, on top of the social discrimination, on top of the isolation. And so this is just an opportunity to kind of 
open up a whole new day for this workforce. And so I hope that all of you will get involved in, in making that dream a reality and to watch, uh, watch with us for making sure that the road to citizenship is as inclusive and as broad as possible. Um, oftentimes the details really matter and in past versions of immigration reform there were requirements like having to prove steady employment which as many of you know is very difficult for all undocumented workers let alone domestic workers and so we have to make sure that when we define the road to citizenship it is inclusive and it doesn't um, replicate the kinds of exclusions that we've faced in the past um, and that we really think about this as a moment to press the reset button and create a new day for low-wage workers. Thank um, you so much, everyone. So questions, remember to wait for the mic right here in the front row and um, introduce yourself uh, when you get the mic. Yes, hello. Do you want me to stand? Sit down. Uh, hello. Thank you very much. My name is Jeffrey Slavin. I am a local philanthropist, and I am a. Um, I was raised by domestic employees, uh, African American, and I've been an employer of domestic employees for 35 years. Immigrant. Um, I am. Uh, I think it's really important to say that domestic workers take care of our most valuable assets, our homes, and our children, and I think that. Um, Unfortunately, we've heard some nice stories here, but the, what I've learned today really and realized is that the business model for domestic workers in this country is slavery. And we, what we really need to do is raise the level of professionalism because I truly believe that this can be a career, you know, a career job for people. And if you think about how complicated the household is today, taking care of a, of a house and, and raising uh, children are taking care of the elderly. You know, you have equipment, you have supplies, chemicals, you have psychology, nutrition, shopping, time management, and driving. And I think that we can create positions that that you can move up in and acquire more skills. And then, and I do think the employers will pay higher wages if the skills are higher and the experience is higher. So I'm very encouraged by what I'm hearing today. Thanks so much. Just maybe move back the room there. My name is Li Yang. I heard about all these domestic workers, immigrants, and uh, low-wage workers. But my basic question is uh, a little bit social perspective and uh, relative sense. Do you think you, or in a sense, uh, how many workers who will not have to be a domestic workers or low-wage workers, if their house, their home, their family are not broken up, and the same as a lawyer, uh, employer, if their spouse are not broken up, is not divorced, and elderly are not abused, do you think they really need in such a desperate manner, and then, but they cannot really afford the domestic worker any higher wages? And then after that, you are pushing for a higher wage. But do you think pushing that is more useful than the relative sense that you maintain good stability of your life rather than say even a higher wage, $10 per hour, is not even enough for you to pay a traffic ticket? 
So do you think you have to really work on solving the social issues, the policy issues, rather than the sort of narrowly defined lower wage? Okay, that sounds like maybe another panel discussion, but it <laughs> certainly gets at the, the demographic changes and social changes that are really driving uh, this. Do you want to address it, I think? Do you want to take it? Go ahead. Well, I think the <laughs> I, I think this does really speak to some of the cultural change that we see happening. And I would say, regardless of these social and cultural changes and shifts that are happening in our country, uh, if somebody works for a whole day, they deserve to make enough to support themselves, whether their family um, is um, you know, intact in as you were talking about it or not. But this is really, I think, about the fundamental principle that if you work a full day, you deserve to be paid a wage that lets you live um, and meet your basic needs. We should also note that even in two-income families that are intact, they're, they're both working and, and mm -hmm. there's a big need for, for caregivers. Who would, where's the mic? I don't know where the mic is. Maybe right there, the lady in the brown and orange? Hi, I'm Judith Levy, DC Coalition on Long-Term Care. Uh, approximately 20 states are applying to be uh, health developing health insurance exchanges mm -hmm. uh, across the country, and um, health benefits is one thing that domestic workers don't have, and health right. is a very important care, you know, getting healthy and being healthy and staying healthy is very important. How do you see um, that impacting the domestic care workers? That's a great question. Well, um, health care reform was a huge step forward, um, and there's a lot of fights in the states now about making sure that the states adopt Medicaid expansion under the health care reform because that would provide access to health care for a lot of very low income workers who currently don't have access to health care. Um, so that includes some domestic workers, certainly. Um, and in New York, one thing that we're experimenting with is trying to create a domestic worker specific health insurance program that um, lowers the cost of uh, health care for domestic workers through limiting the number of facilities and just trying to be creative about how to keep the costs down because the reality is even with reform, it's going to be um, you know, it's, it's going to be a challenge to afford it for a domestic worker earning poverty wages. And, um, and finally, I'd say that immigration reform is a, huge, um, is a huge factor here as well because undocumented immigrants currently are not included under the Affordable Care Act. So to make sure that if, if we can actually create a road to citizenship for all of these workers, it actually expands. There's a way in which healthcare reform and immigration connects and more domestic workers can actually be eligible for health insurance. So, um, so all of these things are opportunities and we have to continue to expand the opportunities. Okay. Over here. Hello, my name is Leonate Jones and I was formerly on the board of the Women's Foundation of California. Um, I, one of the great difficulties as an employer for, uh, for my mother was that I got a call in 2003 that she had fallen and that she really couldn't go home again. 
And so I began the odyssey of employing a number of, uh, of people to care for my mother. I did get a contract, but I got it from calling a friend who had employed uh, someone for a number of years. The friend who just left, I called him to ask him what is a fair wage um, to try and establish a rate. I then tried to pay Social Security, which is a nightmare if you, you know, I had 24-hour care, Monday through Friday, no problem. The weekend was, so I ended up having a number of people I employed and paid Social Security. So I'm saying that there needs to be a lot of help to the employers who want to do the right thing because it is very difficult to do the right thing. Absolutely. Is there any, any uh, way to make that um, system easier? I think I didn't talk about your, the website. Right? Yes, definitely check out the Hand in Hand website. And we're also looking at policy measures that could make things like paying taxes easier. We're also looking at the opportunity to uh, create tax credits for employers who are paying out of pocket for care. Um, so we're looking at all kinds of policy measures as well to make things easier for employers, but certainly there are resources out there like Hand in Hand. I'm just saying that when you're going through a really volatile time, yeah. there isn't as much knowledge about Hand in Hand as mm -hmm. the, the problems Absolutely. No, thank you for, for raising that. Um, can we get a mic up here? Hi, Judy Berman, DC Appleseed. Um, just apropos to your to your comment, it was a, it was occurring to me an observation that parents have done a pretty good job of organizing themselves through social media, and I've certainly seen a lot of education going on in community listservs um, about hiring, about um, leave practices, bonus practices, all of these things that um, that really can serve to raise the quality of the jobs. Um, much less so around the long-term care. Um, you know, there's not as much organizing for people whose parents are aging, you know. <laughs> it's like, you know, there's no DC urban, you know, like parents of aging, you know, children of aging parents kind of thing. Um, and so it, it occurs to me that that's a, there's a, there's a population there. Um, I mean, there's both a, an opportunity to tap the parenting networks with the kind of information for those who hire, um, you know, childcare workers. Um, but the same thing kind of needs to happen somehow for the long-term care workers. Um, so just Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I really want to encourage everybody to go to the website caringacrossgenerations.org. Um, very soon this year we'll be launching a Caring Across Generations action site, which will be a resource that specifically targets people who are looking to find out more information about how to navigate long-term care needs for their, for their family members and how to get involved in the campaign that's about expanding accessibility and affordability as well as improving job quality. So um, www.caringacrossgenerations.org and get involved, sign up. We're a movement that's growing and that's seeking to do exactly what you said, which is get people engaged and involved and, and, and helping to move real change forward. Okay, ma'am. I'm Carolyn Alper. Barbara, this question is for you. Yeah. I was really curious how you went from being an employee to this life-changing change as an advocate. 
uh, in this field. It must have been a remarkable shift in something. It, yes, it was. Um, I must say that before um, I came to the U.S., I came from Barbados, from the Caribbean. I was a labor activist. I was, I, um, I was a delegate in the, a delegate in the um, trade union, the Barbados Workers <laughs> Union, and I sat on the executive council of the Barbados Workers Union. After working as a, a nanny here in this country and um, realizing that um, the exclusions for the work of a nanny, I, I, I find that voice again and that, that, uh, <laughs> that power again to speak out and um, to mobilize and to advocate for um, domestic workers. And, um, and so I, I did a training with Domestic Workers United in, in New York. And after that training, I just decided um, this, is, this is my calling. I, I need to, to get back up there. I need to give um, workers voice to, to help them to represent themselves. And, and basically, this is, is what's happening now, even with the new laws in New York. Um, we establish an ambassador program where workers go out and inform other workers, um, arm themselves with flyers, leaflets, um, whatever they know, and seek out other workers. And there's still a lot of workers in not only New York, ab about around the country now that um, we need to find. Some people are still, um, we know this industry is, a lot of it is in the gray market and um, some people are underground and fearful of coming forward and the more we talk about it, the more we put it out there, the more people, workers hear about it and they will come out of the shadows. Okay. Are we uh, up? Time is up. All right. Thank you so much. So I want to give a big round of applause for our panelists. And thank you so much to all of you for coming. We really appreciate your coming and participating.